Good morning. Welcome. Glad to have you here with us today. For those who don't know, my name is Matt. I'm a member here at North Star. Pastor Joshua is uh, the SBC convention, so I am filling in and happy to do that. We as a church have been working through 1 Peter, and today we come to chapter 4. And so let's dive right into it. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to look at the first six verses. I'll give you a quick minute to get there. Starting in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious God above, we thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word, to hear what you have written to us through your Holy Spirit so many years ago. Pray that you'll soften the hearts of the hearers and of the preacher. Pray for Joshua and Victor as they are away at the convention, that they will glorify you, they will seek to honor you and represent your name. Pray for those who are sick and not able to be here with us today that you will give them comfort and aid even as they may be watching along online. And Lord, as we prayed in the prayer of confession, as we'll hear tonight and this morning, we pray for the world who is lost and needs your hope. In your name we pray. Amen. Title of today's sermon is Life in View of the End. And for the cliffhanger part, it's part one. Next week, Paul will do part two. Um, Life in view of the end. I want you to think about that for a second. What does that mean? What is the end? Two ends, really, right? One, the final end where Jesus returns and brings death, uh, final end to sin and death. Or more likely, on a shorter timeline, your end here on earth when you die. Practically speaking, either one ends the same for us. We will stand before God and give an account for what we've done with his son, Jesus Christ for every word we have uttered, for where we have put our faith and our trust. Have we put that trust in earthly things, material things, or we put our hope in things eternal? So keep that in mind as you listen today. This is for our eternal well-being, and not just ours, but the world around us. Live with that end in mind. So when we think about the end, end of our life, One thing we think about a lot would be maybe retirement. I know as you get to my age, you might be start thinking that way. So as a kid, kids, you guys get birthday money, you get Christmas card money, and you blow it all on candy and Pokemon cards, right? Um, Then you grow up, and you get a little bit older, maybe you get your first job, and you feel so rich until you move out and live on your own. And then you realize how expensive life is. Car insurance, food, rent, $6 lattes, the Lord wills, I'm not judging, if the Lord wills, you get married, maybe you have kids, 
Maybe get a house. Maybe start saving a little bit. Then you have what? Car repairs, a leaky roof. Heaven forbid a kid who wants to go to college and get married. Gets about my age, maybe a little bit older. Reality hits you. Holy cow, I have no clue how I'm going to retire. Should I get the Walmart vest right now? Should I start stocking up on puppy chow? Like there is this point in life when you realize everything I have, I've worked my entire life since I was age 14, 15, 16. Many of us work 30, 40, 50 years, reach that end and maybe don't have a ton to show for it. There's no one who lays in their deathbed, should you be so lucky to have one, and say, ah, oh, wish I'd put in more, off- more hours at the office. Yeah, that would have been good in my 30s. I wish I'd missed a few more Little League games. Peter's exhorting us to think of so much more than our earthly retirement. He's asking us to think about our eternal retirement. Where will you spend not your golden years, but all of eternity? Remember, this world and all the things of this world, paying taxes, your golf game, your car troubles, your health, they're not permanent. They are temporary. Our hope Hope lies in the eternal. Our eternal residence is in heaven. Our hope is not in this world, nor the things of this world, and it should not be. Not only is this world fleeting and temporary and not our home, this world is harsh. It is not created for the temporary comfort of Christians. Peter makes it clear throughout this entire epistle, we are going to suffer. Chapter 2, he tells us, submit to all authority, the good ones and the evil ones. He tells servants, submit to your masters, the good and gentle, as well as the unjust. In chapter 3, he tells us we are going to suffer. He tells us to suffer for righteousness' sake. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That promises you're going to receive evil and reviling. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. Why? So that he may bring us to God. Christ, the righteous, the holy one, suffered not for his own sins or quirks or foibles, any fault of his own. He suffered that we may be saved through his suffering. So in the same breath, Peter writes this last text and all of this entire epistle we come to today. He tells us this is exactly what we're going through. A quick summary preview of what we're talking about today right here. Since Christ suffered, whoever has suffered in the flesh has been freed from the bondage of sin. So no longer are we to live for our human passions, but for the will of God. He says the days of living like a sinner are behind us. Yet each one of us here were at one time sinners. We are once part of that crowd who takes pleasure in sinful desires, and that crowd will still ask us to join in with those sins. And when when we refuse, they will speak evil of us. Make no mistake, they will stand before God and give an account for their actions. This is why the gospel is preached. Even to sinners such as them, even to sinners such as us, that they may repent of their sin and turn towards Christ. So that's the context of the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Christ suffered for our sins. Christ the righteous suffered even unto death for the unrighteous. Namely us. And he suffered for one reason. It's not for our 
earthly comfort. It's for our salvation. And we suffer. We will suffer along with him for his namesake. But there's a reason. There's a reason for this suffering. There's a hope far greater than living for any human passion we want, as we will see today. So we got three main points. My note takers, front row, I see you. Three main points today. Okay, one, sanctified sojourner. Sanctified sojourner. Two is going to be maligned my man. And three will be prepared to preach. Let's dive right in. Point one, 1 Peter 4, verse 1, sanctified sojourner. Let me read it. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of this time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Please notice this passage begins with, since therefore. This is, as we've said, a continuation of the previous thought, leading right out of chapter 3, but really the entire book. As we've seen in our entire study through First Peter, Peter's making it clear, we are sojourners, we are exiles, we are not of this world. We have been set apart. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And why have we been set apart? Chapter 2. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That we may proclaim his excellencies. This is why we are to submit to all authorities, both good and evil. Peter's not blind. He knows evil authorities exist. Tells us that by doing good, you should put to death the silence. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That doesn't always feel good. Let me be good so I can silence foolish people. Servants, be subject to your masters. Why? So that you may show the goodness of Christ to them, both the good and the unjust masters. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? So they may be won over by your conduct. And then in the passage directly preceding where we are today, he tells us to suffer for righteousness' sake. Do not repay evil for evil, but suffer that we may be witnesses for God's goodness and mercy. Because even Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ, the Son of God, born a man, lived a perfect and righteous life here on earth. He was hated. He was slandered. He was maligned. He was rejected and oppressed by his people. He was murdered by his own government. So, since Christ suffered in the flesh, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Flesh is referring to here, those who have suffered in the flesh, is referring to our earthly lives, our earthly bodies. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary, says this, whoever has suffered for doing right and has still gone on obeying God in spite of the suffering it involved. Whoever has sacrificed for the sake of the gospel, whoever has denied self and sin, even lost friends and family to follow Christ. That's what Peter means by those who have suffered in the flesh. And if you think in terms of the early reader, they sacrificed a lot, Jew and Gentile, to follow Christ. We also are to sacrifice and suffer. Since we have suffered for his name's sake, since we have united ourselves with Christ through this suffering, what's it say? We are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had. What's that way of thinking? We've led up to this. First Peter talks about the entire way through. The end goal of Christ's suffering, as well as our own, is to proclaim the victory that Jesus' death on the cross provides to the lost. 
We are these sanctified sojourners, saved by grace. Now, arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ had. We suffer so that the gospel can be proclaimed, even to those who persecute us. We can look at our evil and corrupt government overlords and say, yeah, I'm not submitting to that. And that feels good. But when you put that in the context of Scripture, our end game is not a well-run government by the people for the people to protect our inalienable rights. Those are nice-to-haves. Our end goal is the salvation of the lost and the perseverance of the saints. I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone here. I see the same things going on in this world that you do. I want to see the righteous vindicated and the evil vanquished. But Christ has shown us by his example, by his submission to death on the cross. And Peter makes it clear, we are to be the light of this world. And we do that by suffering well. We do that by living righteously. So, continuing on, Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He means us. He means those of us who have taken on the mantle of Jesus Christ. We have partaken in Christ's suffering, denied ourselves, picked up our cross, followed him. We're going to suffer. We may suffer physically. Many throughout Christian history have. That's what the martyrs are. We may, sooner rather than later, be abused or imprisoned for our beliefs. Many around the world are. We may just suffer humiliation or name-calling. Might lose a friend. Might lose a job. But another version of this suffering is also just denying ourselves the pleasures of this world the sinful pleasures, as well as working too much, living for yourself. By standing firm in our faith, by not giving in to sinful temptation, as he writes to us, for example, I often, and I've mentioned this, try to lose a few pounds. I'm not going to call it a diet. I don't do that. I eat healthy. But really what I do is I don't eat cookies. So I don't go to the gym necessarily. I'm not running a mile or five miles. I'm not even eating vegetables. What I'm doing is walking by a cookie and not eating it. That, to me, is suffering. That is my version. Yes, by Tuesday night, I've fallen off the wagon, right? But hear me now. I am not partaking in something that gives me pleasure. We are set apart from this world. Our light is to have no fellowship with darkness. Our abstaining from the sins of this world that can look so appealing. You may not suffer abject persecution, but you are marked to be different. This doesn't mean we don't sin or can't sin or won't ever sin again, right? But we have been made new creatures in Christ, growing in our sanctification and hating our sin more and more. We will not be perfect. We will sin again, I promise you. But we have ceased to love our sin. We have ceased to prefer our sin to Christ. Christ has put together our old nature a.k.a. our flesh, as New Testament often refers to that. We are made new in Him. Romans six fourteen. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We are not under the law, but we are under grace. Sin will have no dominion over us. We will sin, but it does not take that loving root in our heart. Therefore, since we are new creatures under grace, moving on to verse 2 of our passage, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So as to live for the rest of the time in flesh, in the flesh, no longer for human passions. So this instance of in the flesh really just continues to mean our earthly bodies right here. 
Don't live the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of the time you have here on earth. In the past, you lived as the Gentiles lived. You lived for your selfish human passions. So now, the rest of this time here on earth, live for the will of God. What is the will of God? We've already seen it. To proclaim his victory to the lost. Live your life in view of the end. To remember this end goal. First Peter tells us in chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is not moving the goalposts here. This is not a new concept. This is the same drumbeat over and over and over again. This world and all its pleasures are temporary. Our hope is eternal. So suffer well that we may be an example to the ungodly. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, like that doesn't sound fun, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Powerful words there. I'm often reminded of those who've gone before us, particularly the missionary Jim Elliott. He lived a short time on this earth. He graduated college and he went off to be a missionary to the Ecuadorian Indians. Jim Elliott was killed at age 28 for trying to bring the gospel to an unreached tribe. He didn't plan for his retirement. He didn't reach retirement. He lived for Christ. He suffered for Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are passing through this world. We might have 10 years here. We might have 100. But we will have an eternity in heaven. And the command here is this. For the rest of your time in the flesh, for the rest of this time that you have on this earth, and nothing is guaranteed. We all know we can drive out of here today and get hit by a car. Don't live for your human, human passions, but live for the will of God. Bringing us to our second point, maligned by man, starting in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Remember, the time that is past, before. And to clarify, the word Gentiles here literally means non-Hebrew, non-Jewish. Um, the Gentiles lived alongside the Jews, but they were a completely different people, right? The Gentiles may have had false gods, as may have worshipped other gods, but they lived for themselves. They were hedonistic. This likely was written to these Gentile converts, Regardless of the state of their eternal heart, Jews of the day would have been outwardly not partaking in these type of sins. They would not have had this history that the world had seen them living this way. But Gentiles, those who formerly participated in the passions and drunkenness and lawless idolatry, those are us. We are not Christian. We are not saved by birthright, right? We all have a time before when we were saved. Whether you're saved at age 5 or 55, there was a time that you did not live for Jesus Christ. Some of us were saved young. Some of us have beautiful testimonies, raised in a Christian home, learned of the gospel. We heard testimonies last week at Celebration Sunday. We hear them regularly whenever we accept new members of, I was raised, I heard the gospel. But what do we also hear? I heard early 
but I strayed. I walked away. It didn't take hold. Maybe, maybe God converted you, convicted you of your sin at age 12, maybe 15. Maybe you went off to college. Maybe you dipped a toe in that world. Some of us were saved in adulthood. Some of us have those histories, history of living unencumbered by the gospel in pursuit of self, sometimes wild and egregious sin and sometimes just pure selfishness and laziness. Wherever you are, do you sit back and look and say, oh, do you shudder at your former self and thank God for where you are? Potentially, you look back wistfully, tell those stories of the good old days a little too energetically. Whatever plot you find yourself in, Peter tells us that time is over. Put it away. You have lived that life. You have been down that road, Neo. You know where it leads. There's a Chinese proverb I love. It says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Second best time was today. The best time to dedicate your life to Christ, to live for nothing other than furthering his kingdom, is 20 years ago. Second best time is today. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. This is the promise. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You once were lost, but now are found. Every Christian, dear brother and sister, every Christian lives with the weight of their sin. The lie that the enemy wants you to believe is that you're not forgiven. They want to, the enemy wants to remind you of your sin, that you're nothing more than your worst sin, to strangle you with your guilt and your past, but Remember, that is not the gospel that we know and love. You are a forgiven child of God, dear brother and sister. Psalms 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Remember, you are a royal, a royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're called to live holy as Christ is holy. Live like a child of the king, not a peasant of this world. In the Matrix, I know I, I refer to that often. In the Matrix, there's a scene where Neo learns Kung Fu. And he goes into the fight simulator to fight Morpheus. And he's going all crazy, super fast. We've all seen that scene. If you haven't, please go see it. And he's going crazy. He can't lay a finger on Morpheus. And what does Morpheus say? He looks at him and he says, you're faster than this. Don't think you are. Know you are. Believer, you are a child of God, forgiven of your sin, a partaker in Christ's suffering unto death. Don't think you are. Know you are. And live like it. So when Peter says the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, he's saying it ends now. This is our delineation point. Here's your past. Here's your future. You no longer are to live as a Gentile. You have been redeemed by the most precious blood ever spilt. Christ, the righteous, suffered unto death on a cross to pay for your sins, your freedom, your salvation. And having heard this gospel, having accepted that forgiveness, the time of living for your old self, for your flesh, 
is over. Don't live like one who wanders in this world for the world's pleasure, but live like a child of God, a sojourner who counts suffering a joy. Live like it because the world does not. So how does the world live? As we see in Scripture here, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Wow. Note the type of sins Peter's lists here, and this is similar to what we saw in the 1 Corinthians passage I just read. They come down to sexuality, sensuality and passions and orgies, and substance abuse, drunkenness, drinking parties. These are sins of the flesh. These are sins of passion. It's it's amazing to me. 2,000 years ago, in this world void of technology and social media and manufactured narcotics, Peter saw them... These, the, those around him as giving themselves up to these passions that are so familiar to us today. Look around you. We are surrounded by this. Do you see anywhere sexuality being perverted, being celebrated, taking pride in it? Do we see the natural gifts of God being abused and distorted and mutilated beyond all recognition? We can talk about the evils of abortion, and we should. It is murdering an unborn child of God made in his image. But that sin is the end result of lust and licentiousness and passions and sensuality. You can drive down any major city, San Francisco, L.A., and see that homeless problem. And that's largely a drug abuse problem. The desire to alter your mind to the point of losing touch on reality. Many of the sins this world faces now and 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years before that are derived from this perverse sexuality and desire to give in to your passions. With no shame, this world embraces their sin. And this last one, lawless idolatry, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Thinking of only yourself as the final arbiter of right and wrong, of good and evil, where you worship the created more than the creator. Guys, this is a picture of modern hedonism. This is not outlandish. This is how the world lives, with no thought or care to anything other than their human and carnal passions. Romans 1, Paul tells us, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Idolatry. Continuing on, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the lusts in their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Notice that pattern. First comes the lawless idolatry, followed right by the essentialing and dishonoring their bodies. There is no new thing under the sun. This is how the world lives without Christ. This is how it lived in Peter's time. This is how it lives today. And then how do they deal with us, thus who are set apart? Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Why are they surprised? Why are they surprised? They don't share our heart. They are dead in their sins. They have hearts of stone. They, they do not understand. They don't comprehend why we don't participate. It's like, it's like the complete disconnect I have with someone who says, man, I love Brussels sprouts. I don't think they're lying. 
I just have no way to relate to it. So outside of my mom, when I was a kid, sitting at the table and her forcing me to not leave until I ate the Brussels sprouts, I would never do that. But my wife loves Brussels sprouts. Every time we go to a restaurant, she gets giddy when they have Brussels sprouts on the menu. She's like, oh, Brussels sprouts. And she says, do you want some? Get some Brussels sprouts. You share them with me. And every single time, no. And so the waitress will come by and she'll say, how are the Brussels sprouts? And I just wish a waitress would be honest. But instead, they always say, oh, they're the best. They're my favorite. Oh, they're so good. Everyone gets them. So my wife will order the Brussels sprouts. She'll take a bite. And she'll, oh, these are so good. Matt, do you want some? Come on, Matt, have some Brussels sprouts. The world invites you to participate and partake of their Brussels sprouts. They are surprised when we do not join them. When we decline, they malign us. They speak evil of us. My wife does not speak evil of me. They count our righteousness as unrighteousness. Why is that? Could it be because they know in their hearts of their guilt and their sin, and they can't stand to have us not joining them in their damnation? This is how the world operates. They revel. They revel in sin. They want to drag you down with them. I want to be clear. I'm not calling Brussels sprouts a sin. At best, it's a second or third tier issue. That's between you and God. But the world revels in sin, and they don't understand why we don't participate. And when you don't, do they just leave you alone? Or do they mock you? Think back to your teenage peer pressure days or a work situation or anywhere you've been where you're surrounded by the world. When they're doing something wrong and they invite you to partake, especially in your teenage years, and you say no, are they like, he's right, guys. Let's not do this anymore. No, they call you teacher's pet or goody two-shoes or something like that. When someone is in sin, they likely know it and they feel it. Misery loves company. They don't want to leave you out of their sin. What happens when someone is living such a devious lifestyle and they demand their sin is celebrated and recognized? If you're a baker, are you allowed to just go about minding your own business? Or are you called a bigot and sued out of existence? If you don't participate in the world's sin, they will malign you. They'll call you every type of phobic there is. They will attribute evil to your righteousness. This is just as prevalent today as it was 2,000 years ago. Peter tells us in chapter 3, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Don't be tempted to trade a feast at the, pig's, at the king's table for a trough of pig slop. Don't trade your righteousness for the approval of heathens. Be steadfast in your obedience to Christ, knowing that your suffering brings about the will of God. But also, be prepared to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Section 3, prepared to preach. Starting in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, They might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is the crux of this passage. This is the entire crux of 1 Peter, in my opinion. Note takers, this is the application part. For this is why the gospel was preached, that they might live in the Spirit. If I run social media, 
which is evil. I would post it with some hand clap emojis saying like this, so much this. We, children of God, who have shared in the suffering with Christ, who know that we are destined for such a greater future than the fleeting pleasures of this world, good pleasures like golf and family and cookies, as well as the evil pleasures, debased sexuality or drunkenness or Brussels sprouts, we who have ceased from sin, who live no longer for our human passions, but for the will of God. We, whose righteousness will be spoken evil of, who are maligned for not taking part in the world's pleasures. We learned last week Jesus went to proclaim the victory over sin and death to the spirits, just as the apostles were called to go proclaim that same victory to the world. We are to proclaim that same victory here on earth to those not yet saved by the grace of God. Why? So that they may be saved. This is our imperative of this passage. I want to clarify the language of this verse. This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. This is not referring to preaching to dead people. Once you're dead, your fate is sealed. There is no purgatory. There's no amount of prayer that will save someone who has died after that fact. This is referring to when it says, this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. That Though uh, This is referring to those who have previously lived, heard the gospel, were saved by that gospel, and then have gone on to be with the Lord. Continue on, it says, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, all will be judged at the end. Every man and woman will face that final judgment. Everyone here, everyone within Christ, everyone without Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then in the last clause, I want to explain real quick. They might live in the spirit the way God does. That they too will live in righteousness. Like we've been discussing all morning long. That they will live as one of us. Those who have suffered and will suffer along with Christ. Who will no longer live for human passions. Who will shun sensuality and drunkenness and lawless idolatry. That's our hope. That they will live that way. So have you ever heard the phrase, sometimes you're the only Bible that someone will ever read? I've heard that a lot growing up. Matthew 5, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love this. Peter, a disciple, was there when this was said. And you see that throughout this entire book. Our righteousness, to borrow a phrase from Joshua, is in part for the watchful eye of the world. We will be called evil. We will be maligned. We will be mistreated, not for doing bad, but for doing righteous things, for our righteousness. But your suffering is not in vain. It is to be, in part, a witness to the gospel to the unsaved. Matthew 9, verse 36 starts, When he, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Peter is imploring us to be those laborers. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that these people are judged in the flesh. These people are destined for that final judgment and damnation, but that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Here's the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things in the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things in the Spirit. Flesh, Spirit. For to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why was the gospel preached? That those in the flesh, those who have set their mind on the things of your world here, those still in their human nature so that they can live like Christ, that those who are still alive here on earth who live for their own sinful nature, living in the flesh, can hear the word of God because those who live in the flesh are hostile to God. And what happens to those who die in that state of hostility towards God? Those who live in the flesh cannot please God. This is why God is patient. God desires those, even those who make themselves intentionally an enemy of God. God desires that they will avoid that ultimate judgment. Brothers and sisters, we have that truth. Do not hoard that truth. Share it, proclaim it, preach it boldly. Live it. Yes, let your life be that proclamation. Let your good deeds proclaim God's transformation in your life. Live like someone can live so that someone can look at you and say, hey, you seem different. Yes, be prepared to give an answer for that hope that is within you. But also look for gospel opportunities. Look to speak the truth to people. I'm going to bet most of us can count on one hand or maybe even one finger the number of times that we've been approached and someone says, hey, can you tell me about Jesus? Hey, what must I do to be saved? But I bet every single day we come across someone who's not going to be on the right side of the law when they are asked to give an account to him who's ready to judge. So yes, live like you're set apart. Let your life light so shine. But also, go proclaim the gospel. Not asking you to stand on the street corner with a megaphone, preaching destruction and damnation. Not asking you to engage in Facebook arguments. But when you providentially cross paths with someone, look for those opportunities. Just ask questions. How are you doing? Not so great? What's going on? Just ask. Just get to know them. Some people are often intimidated because they say they don't have all the answers or they're worried they're going to get tripped up. Peter tells us, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There goes your Facebook discussion. Not be able to argue every nuanced point of systematic theology, but be able to give a reason for your hope. Give a reason for your hope. Hey, I don't have all the answers, but I know I'm a sinner and God saved me. And that God loves you and wants to save you. Continuing on the next book, Second Peter, Peter tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patient. 
He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This should resonate with us. He is not slow to fulfill his promises to us. When we watch the the world triumph, God has not gone away. He's still God on his throne. He's not slow to fulfill his promises to us. And what are those promises? Remember, life in view of the end. His promise is a glorious one. That while on earth, we may suffer for a while. We will sacrifice, we will suffer, we will be maligned. Many have died for their faith in Christ. Many more will, I'm confident of that. His promise is not for peace on earth. His promise is not for a stable republic where you can live and let live, don't tread on me. His promise is this, that if you call the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And if you repent of your sins and you believe, at the end of this life when you die, you will enter into the presence of God and he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is the victory that was preached to the heavens and earth. That's the victory that robs death of its sting. That is our hope. That is our faith. That is our eternal retirement. Brothers and sisters, the world does not have that hope. That should make us sad. That should make us long to preach this gospel. Let me leave you with this. Romans 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Go. Preach the good news. The good news is that we are sinners and we have a Savior and that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your saving grace, for your mercies, for calling us and making us your own. We pray for the lost of this world who have yet to put their faith and their future in your hands, God. I pray that you will give us boldness to share this gospel, to proclaim it, to love, develop a true, earnest love for the lost. Be with us as we go about our week. In your name we pray, amen.